Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to That Anthro Podcast, a podcast about all things anthropology. Before I introduce this week's guest, I'd like to let you know about a fundraising campaign that I've started. So in June of 2020, I adopted my dog Daisy from the Santa Barbara Humane Society, and I am eternally grateful for their work for animals, but also that they brought me my dog. Now, the Santa Barbara Humane Society is a wonderful, wonderful animal shelter in Santa Barbara, and I actually ended up bringing Daisy back for training classes there and I was really worried that she may have some negative associations with going back to the shelter when in reality she ran up to the people the people that had been working when she was adopted she remembered them she was so happy to see them and they remembered her they offered training classes boarding as well as low-cost veterinary services for the community but 20th birthday is coming up in April and I don't really feel like I need anything but I feel like I wanted to support one of my local charities that really could use some help. So if you could please consider sharing or donating a small amount to the link in the episode notes or in my Instagram bio, 100% of the donations go directly from GoFundMe straight to the Santa Barbara Humane Society and the Santa Barbara Humane Society actually has um, a little thing on their website that kind of explains what a certain donation means for them. So for example, a $15 donation can help give an animal an important vaccine or deworming procedure. $25 can give them a microchip with lifetime registration. $80 helps with vaccines for multiple dogs or cats. $100 can help clear up a respiratory infection. $200 could be for x-rays, anesthesia, or other critical needs. So as you can see, really donating any amount is truly, truly helping the animals there. And they, they help cats as well. Um, and I believe some other non-traditional animals, such as bunnies, sometimes chickens, depending. So if you could please consider sharing or donating, I would be eternally grateful, as would Daisy. She loves them. Thank you. So now, this week's guest on the podcast is the lovely Michelle Coons of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, who today is going to be talking all about her graduate work in Peru on the Moche peoples and her role as a curator of anthropology at the Denver Museum in Science. For more information on Michelle, go check out the episode notes for links to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, as well as her Instagram, where she actually posts informational videos about the artifacts in the collections. Her Instagram will be in the episode notes, but it is at dr.michelle.coons. Also, please consider following That Anthro Podcast on Instagram at That Anthro Podcast and on Twitter at That Anthro Pod. So without further ado, let's hear a word about our sponsor of the podcast, Anchor, and then get into the episode. And now a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, Dr. Coons. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. I'm so excited that you're here today. I'm kind of a big fan. Um, I there's so I just want to give our listeners a little background onto why I specifically invited Dr. Coons on to join us for an episode. So she is the curator of archaeology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, which is extremely impressive in and of itself. But what specifically captured my attention was her Instagram. She does these behind the scenes videos of the anthropology collections at the museum. And I think that they are just so awesome. So before we dive into that, um, I'm going to turn it over to you. Could you tell our listeners about how you first came to work at the Denver Museum and how long you've been working there? Great. Well, first of all, thank you, Gabby, so much for inviting me. This is really, really fun and just a a neat opportunity. So I really, really appreciate it. Um, so I've been at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science now for about eight years. I actually, um, it was kind of a, a really, I don't know, interesting experience how I got my job because I interviewed for a postdoctoral position the day before I defended my dissertation. So it was an incredibly stressful week. <laughs> Um, and I, I was lucky enough to actually get the position and pretty much right after I defended, I ended up moving out to Denver. And while I was um, in my postdoc, one of the curators left. And so I was basically on what felt like a one year interview trying to desperately um, hope that I could get the job and I was fortunate enough to get hired um, about a year later. And so I've been there ever since. And it's just, it's such an awesome place to work. I'm so glad. I have a lot of family in Denver. So when the pandemic is over, I'll definitely be taking a trip to come visit the museum. Oh, please do. (laughs) Yeah. So I'd love for you to explain, and I'll be post, you know, reposting some of these videos that I'm talking about, but I'd love for you to explain why you started creating these short videos on Instagram, giving your followers like a sneak peek at the anthropology collections, because I think it's just like such a wonderful way to engage with your audience and give them these small digestible pieces of information that's going to stick with them. But what kind of inspired you to even start doing that? And this is really a product of the pandemic, 100%. So prior to the pandemic, I did a lot of public outreach, a lot of um, talks, different kinds of presentations. And it's really one of my passions. It's something I really, really enjoy. I love public speaking. Um, And I was starting to feel really disconnected from the public, from being able to share from the passion of science communication. And I I had never really used Instagram before. So I'm still a newbie and I don't really know all the ins and outs and what I'm doing. And I'd never done any video editing before either. And I just had this, um, and you can probably tell from those early videos and they're they're getting better. (laughs) But um, I just had this idea of wanting to share my passion and share what's all the stuff that's super cool behind the scenes that even more so with the pandemic, we can't get people back there. We can't do tours like we would before. And to just have that little glimpse into it 
And I first was like, well, maybe I could do YouTube videos, but I know myself and as a scroller, I have very little attention span. And so I was thinking to just give these little snippets of what it's of an object or um, or maybe even like a dig in the future. It's it's enough to pique the interest. And if people want to look more into it, they can, but I don't want to just, you know, pile on the information. So that's how I got started. And it really has only been, I started in January. So it's been like six weeks that since I've started yeah. these videos and um, I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm glad that it's, you know, it's fun for you, but it's also so fun for people watching. And I think that, I mean, I'm an anthropology major and I still love them. So I can only imagine how someone who, you know, maybe is just really interested in archaeology or history or museum collections, like finding that they're like, oh my gosh. And it's, you know, they can take that little bit of info. And like you said, if they want to learn more about that, if their piques their interest, then they can continue to learn about it, but I think it's wonderful. And I definitely think it's a good idea that you are doing them as shorter segments because there is a lot of long form content, you know, including podcasts, but it is fun to mix it up and to do those shorter form um, contents that can engage with a different audience, um, especially like, you know, being on social media, it's shareable, which is great. Um, so I'd love to learn about how you got interested in anthropology and archaeology. And um, was it something, you know, you loved from a young age or did you discover it during your studies? Yeah, so it was one of those things where I was always really interested in it as a kid. I grew up on the beach in New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore. <laughs> and I was always, uh, like I spent my whole summer just looking in the rocks, the area, like the jetty area for different creatures and hermit crabs and sand dollars um, and just always digging holes. I was always just, I don't know, it was just something I enjoyed doing. So it was that sense of discovery that beach combing, but also the idea that you might find something if you dig. I know my uncle, I remember he got a metal detector at one point, we would just look for coins and it was super fun. <laughs> and, um, and so I always thought it was something fun and interesting. I never really thought of it as much uh, as like a career or anything. Um, I went to school originally to study um, sports medicine. Oh. And I went to, yeah, totally different. <laughs> I went to um, University of Pittsburgh. It was a very, very large school. And so I had to take a lot of these biology classes, chemistry classes with like 400 other students. And um, I was struggling my first semester with, with that environment. But I also had this opportunity, my first um, my first semester to go to Bolivia for this alternative spring break project to go build a school. And oh, I didn't, yeah, it was really cool. And I didn't really know much about, honestly, I didn't know anything about Bolivia. I grew up in Philadelphia and like our history classes were like the revolution in Europe. It wasn't really, you know, anything about South America. And so, um, I went on this trip and I was just astounded by the culture and the people and all this new thing, stuff that I had never, ever imagined. And I immediately came home and changed my major to anthropology, Latin American studies. And 
um, I never looked back. It was, you know, it was the right decision. I was doing more cultural stuff at first, but then um, ended up having to take archaeology in the four fields and um, did a field school. And once I got to field school, I was just like, this is it for me. This is really what I want to do. And even if people told me they don't know archaeologists, that that's not a real job. I was like, mm -hmm. no, I, I think I'm going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, thankfully, it's worked out. Yeah. Where was that first field school that you did? It was in um, Ithaca, New York. So oh, okay. I was looking at, yeah, Iroquois villages. Um, and it was really interesting. There was one that we were excavating that was pre-European um, contact and one that was post. And so we got to see the differences that over time. And so it was just, a, it was a fascinating project and um, a really great entree into the field. Definitely. I honestly really want to do some work in the United, in some archaeological work in the United States, because the one field school that I had an opportunity to do before uh, COVID was in Spain. And while that is obviously, you know, a wonderful experience in and of itself, I'd love to learn more about the archaeology of the Americas since it is, you know, the place that I was born and raised. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So where did you receive your PhD from? So I did my PhD at Harvard University. When I saw that on your CV, I said, wow, she went to Harvard. Oh my goodness. But Boston in general is just such a thriving, lovely place. You know, I'll be applying to Boston University's master's program. And, you know, I, I actually applied to Boston University for undergrad. It's definitely a really cool town, a cool vibe, you know, so many colleges. I'm sure that kind of adds, you know, to all the fun. There's lots of students in the area. Um, what was the subject of your thesis? Well, I, um, I studied the Moche civilization of Peru for my for my thesis, and um, I did a I dug a site that had never been really worked at before, um, what I call a mid-sized ceremonial center, um, and so. I was really putting that on the map, so to speak, and looking at political dynamics in general, and so um, yeah it was a it was a pretty fascinating project. <laughs> Was it hard, you know, um, or I suppose, what were some of the challenges that you uh, faced starting on a site that hadn't been worked on before? I mean, I think as a thesis project, that's a pretty big, pretty big undertaking. It was. There had been some very, very minor work at one point where basically they just said what was there in terms of there's two pyramids or wakas as they're called there, the temple complexes. Um, and so, but that was it. And, but so it was very challenging to really just do that initial work and try and um, uh, try and just figure out what was going on from a pretty basic, basic level. And um, so we were in the field, I was in the field for about five or six months digging pretty consistently and then um, did lab work for the rest for the rest of the year. So I was there for about a year doing the work. And it was, I mean, the the archaeology itself was just so interesting in Peru and um, really just a fascinating, fascinating um, site. But it logistically, it was really challenging. And I think that that was harder than anything else of the project, just kind of being out in a very remote spot that was a little bit dangerous. Um, yeah. So had to have a lot of security and, um, you know, the language and um, was, it, it, 
I, I speak Spanish, but it's not, I'm not amazing at it. And so there's always a little bit yeah. of that. So it was, it was logistically a very, very challenging project, but um, I think overall a really good experience to, um, to just learn what I was able, what, you know, what I was capable of and kind of test those boundaries. Definitely. I really have developed such a love for Andean pop, you know, ancient Andean populations and archaeology. I think it's really cool. And we'll get into that in a bit. But, you know, you mentioned the Moche civilization and something that I want to make sure I'm doing on the podcast now that I've been doing it for a little bit now is, you know, further diving into these subjects, because I realize that I know quite a bit about them, but my listeners have probably never heard of the Moche civilization. So, if you don't mind, could you kind of give us a little bit of background, you know, maybe a bit about the culture and the time period that they were inhabiting the area at? Sure. So Moche lived on the north coast of Peru. The main period when they were there was about 400 to about 850 or so of um, of the common era. And they're known for these really large temple complexes that we locally call wakas. Um, really fabulous murals decorate many of these like just beautiful polychrome multicolor murals um they're very well known also for their ceramics that have these realistic scenes um some say narrative scenes of um mythic as well as aspects of real life um uh, they're very well known for other crafts as well, like metalwork and wood when it's found, textiles when it's found. Sometimes they don't, those don't preserve as well as um, they do in other places, uh, but really, really quite, um, quite beautiful, beautiful art. And um, they were a complex civilization, pretty um, pretty advanced in terms of you know what of course their craftsmanship and what how they were probably interacting um with between sites and with one another and so it's a incredible canal systems and whatnot so pretty cool yeah. pretty cool stuff <laughs> definitely i mean i was really lucky to take a, an archaeology of the andes class with alicia boswell who we realized you know you know as well which is wonderful wonderful educator and look forward to taking classes with her in the future but, you know, we really were examining the art of all of, you know, many different ancient Indian populations, but we did spend quite a bit of time on the moche and just some of, you know, the motifs and the geometric way that they did their drawings was so unique and special. I'll definitely make sure to post um, some photos so people can see what we're talking about because, you know, they are so intricate and also, you know, some of them are quite... Um, quite morbid a lot of cut off heads and war and you know emperors and lots of blood and <laughs> but it also was a big that was a big part of their uh their culture and what they chose to represent artistically definitely yes very much so it is it, it's um charismatic yeah. <laughs> would be a good word to describe yeah. the moche so two terms that well there's many terms that you know are very important to these ancient indian civilizations but two terms that were brought up in my class with Alicia Boswell and one of them which you already brought up is Waka and Patacucci which you can tell me if I'm saying wrong did I get it right Patacucci um Pach um oh my gosh I'm gonna like pronounce it wrong right now it's Pachacucci Pachacuti Pachacuti. yeah Pachacuti <laughs> so a Waka is defined um or was defined to me as a sacred spot or object that has this special duality and can transfer energy and many are kind of a split between worlds so and then Pachacuti is a major disruption or upheaval that must happen 
each cycle. So the start cycle can start again, such as an El Nino, Nino event or a war. So it's an, antis an anticipated and expected part of the cylindrical cycle. So could you tell me more about these terms and kind of how the Andean worldview of life adds to the archaeological record that you study? I think this is a really interesting question just because um, recently I uh, spent I spent most of COVID or the summer months of COVID, not the whole thing. It's still going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> researching a lot of these Andean concepts that we understand from the um, really highland languages like Quechua and Aymara, um, and we understand them from more contemporary uh, ethno ethnographic um, literature as well as from um, Spanish colonial documents and whatnot, and looking at how we might be able to understand them in places like the north coast of Peru, where the language, uh, the languages that were spoken there are no longer, and to see if some of these concepts are actually translatable, if they're pan-Andean, or if they are more specific to the highlands, and so um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about some of these, some of some of the concepts, not necessarily Waka and Pachacuti, mm -hmm. but the thing about the Waka, which I I would I definitely want to go and and back to because I have mentioned it, is the word that we call these temple complexes, these adobe structures, um, on the north coast. We call them wakas, but that is a Quechua word, and that is not what the Moche people would have called them. That's a word that was given to them after the fact because it, they are thought to be these sacred places on the landscape, so much like what that word represents, but we don't know what they were called by the Moche people. So it's kind of taking that Highland idea of what a sacred sacred location, um, sacred object, sacred place might be, and transferring it to the moche, um, moche culture. So it is kind of an interesting possible misnomer, but maybe not, right? Because they're yeah. probably what, what I was coming down to when I was looking at a lot of this, a lot of these literature and looking at the archaeological record was that there are a lot of commonalities that we see probably conceptually because there's so much interaction between the highlands and the coast through time that started really early, like going back at least, you know, with Camelid trading at 3000 BC. And so there's definitely these, these, I would say, Pan-Andean ideas, but um, it's, it's not necessarily very responsible to just say that everything translates very well mm -hmm. because they are distinct cultures. Um, but um, yeah, so, th but these are, these are definitely really cool, uh, really interesting things to think about yeah. and how the people in the Andes ordered their world and understood their world and how it's so different from a Western, um, you know, conception of, of the world. What's interesting though about Pachacuti and something I've, I've recently been thinking about is, you know, it's, it is this upheaval and it's something that's understood as like, you know, a paradigm shift in many ways that's expected um, in, in these Andean, Andean societies. But I feel like right now we're in a moment of Pachacuti, yeah. right? This, this is totally what we're experiencing through COVID and we're resetting, right? And whatever that looks like on the other side, we don't know yet, but it is very much in line with how you know, the, how I understand um, the Andean, Andean civilizations would have conceptualized what a Pachacuti is. Yeah, definitely. 
Uh, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And definitely something that I hope to continue to study, you know, and Andean archaeology and history. Um, but com since completing, you know, your grad work that we talked about, you've continued to study Andean archaeology in Peru and Bolivia. So what are some of the research questions that you're now studying in these areas? And of course, you know, producing tons of, you know, research on. Sure. Well, it's interesting because I actually took a pretty decent hiatus from working down in Peru after my dissertation work. I, I needed a little time to decompress. Like I said, it's it's hard work, right? And nice. I but I still and I wanted to I wanted to explore other things in archaeology as well. Um, I'm really, really passionate about local archaeology, community community archaeology, archaeology in your own backyard. So that I did start reworking in Peru in 2019, but between 2013 and 2019, I did a bunch of um, other projects. And so I work, I've been working in um, the Southwest in um, New Mexico, near a town called Reserve, which is not near very much. <laughs> it's kind of between Gallup and Silver City, which probably most people don't know where that is. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful highland area of New Mexico with a mountainous area. Um, and I've been looking at um, ancestral Puebloan, um, Mogollon um, Pueblos on the landscape. And we excavated a great kiva there back in 2018 and 2019 in collaboration with the Zuni, um, Zuni tribe and some of the elders who've been very involved in our research. And that's been really wonderful um, project to be involved in. Um, and then I also did a project that is, we're still wrapping up a lot of the like writing and um, I would love to continue in some way a massive community archaeology project where we worked at a site very close to where I live um, here, which is in, it's in Golden, Colorado, and it's a really, really well, very famous site for this part of the world um, called Magic Mountain. And we had, um, we had, oh, in the two years we were out there, which was about five to six weeks total, we had over 3,000 people come through the site on tours. We had, we had um, youth groups that participated. We had um, team programs. It was a really large effort. And that's, that's so, as you could, you contacted me because of my Instagram videos, I love sharing archaeology. So that was a, a project that I'm very, very proud of. And I can't wait to do another big community project once we're able to do one again. Yeah. But I'll go, I'll go back to your original thing. So I started, um, reworking in Peru because I was really missing it. I really missed the 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 amazing archaeology there, right? The just the I mean, okay, I'll be honest, stone like flakes that you find in Golden Colorado compared to murals and yeah <laughs> you know that you see in Peru. It's a hard comparison. So um I recently started working with one of my colleagues, um Lisa Trevor, who's at Columbia University at a site called Pana Marca. And we were there in 2019. Um and um, she excavated back in 2010, all these incredible murals at that site and they're just beautiful. And so we, um, we were doing a little reconnaissance work to do some more excavation, which was supposed to be this past summer, but we've got to now put it off till 2022. And so we'll be looking at just the, this really Southern Moche site, how it was integrated into the Moche world um, with what's going on in the North. And then uh, looking at this art, that's just really incredible there. 
So pretty cool stuff. And then real quick, other, I'm also hoping to get a project going with Alicia in the really far northern parts of Yay. Peru um, so that we can kind of look at it from the northern northern perspective. And so we're, we're hoping to get that off the ground next year too. Yeah, I think people can forget, or at least I can, how big South America is. And the, just the country of Peru alone is huge and has such different environments. You know, it has the high, high mountains and the, you know, the, the Atacama desert, but also it has, you know, those coastal regions that are like flourishing with marine resources, especially, you know, in pre prehistoric times. And it's such, such a fascinating, I mean, my, one of my teachers put Brazil over a map of the United States to remind us that Brazil is larger than North America. I mean, around the, you know, it's, it's a huge continent. Um, so there's so much all, all across Peru for you to study. Um, something that I actually meant to ask you earlier that I forgot was, you know, you work at the museum now and I know you love it because it's very clear and apparent, but what is it about your job as a museum curator that, you know, you find so enjoyable and interesting? What keeps you engaged and, you know, wanting and excited to come to work every day? What is so great? There's so many things that are great about my yeah. job, but and I think it really is that combination of being able to do original field work as an academic, yeah. you know, <laughs> but, you know, having that ability to do, to continue to do field work, to be supported, to do field work, you know, applying for grants, but also have the institutional backing as well is just incredible. But then instead of teaching, um, like, you know, in a traditional university setting, I work oftentimes with volunteers and with of all ages and um, get to, for example, learn some kind of topic that we are we have coming in. So right now we have the Stonehenge exhibit that's going to be opening next week. And um, I'm I'm not on this exhibit, but my one of my colleagues is. And um, so she's had to learn everything about Stonehenge so that she could be the filter that it goes through before it gets out into our volunteers or whatever we're presenting to the media. And mm -hmm. um, I've had that opportunity for exhibits like the Dead Sea Scrolls and um, the Maya and one on Egyptian mummies. Um, and so it's so fun because I get to study like I would study as in grad school and learn this information and then learn how to or figure out how to communicate that to the public. Um, in a way that's going to be accessible and digestible and um, that, again, will pique their interest, but not overloading them with too much content, though, you know, I need to be the person who does know all that content in case things go off the rails with, <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. the, which can happen, right? And so that aspect of my job is super fascinating because it's really this lifelong learning um, a uh, piece of it that I feel so fortunate to get to do. Um, I love also being able to work with the collections, um, learn more about them, bring in experts who know things better than I do and have them tell us and study them and be able to publish on those, those objects and um, share in, in, in different ways the collections themselves. And, and just museums in general are such a fascinating place to be right now. I feel like we're in a real pachacuti, so to speak, um, with the whole idea of, um, with the whole, I would say, movement of decolonization and, you know, really taking responsibility for 
it, things in the past that did not happen the way that we would do them today and to figure out how to be um, an activator and how to to right those wrongs and to be a part of those conversations it's I feel like it's so important and I still feel really fortunate to be to be in that right now um, I do teach a class at one of the universities here it's a museums class and it's been great like we've been talking just so much about I, museum ethics and decolonization, decolonization practices and getting the students feedback and just being able to um, really engage with it. It's, it's I, like I said, I think this is one of the most exciting times to be in museums because of that responsibility and opportunity. Yeah. And the fact that you get to pass along, you know, the things you're learning to a young generation of students, even if it is just in that one class, I think instilling those ideas of ethics and morals and, you know, ethical um, attaining artifacts ethically, you know, and there are some places, you know, that are now having repatriation efforts. And I think that you're right. It's very important. And it's, it's kind of a turning point. I think we can either continue to, you know, obtain things in the unethical ways that it used to be or now you know bringing light what is um one or two things that you think will be you know key in the future of museum studies and that maybe or maybe changes that you like to see in some of the major the major museums across the country totally and i i mean i've seen these changes happen over i've been teaching this class now for about six years and since the time I started teaching to the time to now, I can't believe how many museums have actually come on board to this idea of repatriation mm -hmm. and to, um, and I'm, I mean, international repatriation, yeah. not, not even like beyond NAGPRA. Um, and how many more museums are putting statements out and saying like, this is what we, what we did was, was really awful. And we mm -hmm. can't, you know, we can't um, condone this anymore. And I, I, it's really astonishing how, how across the board, I, mean, I wouldn't say across the board, but how it, rapidly things are changing. Um, it's been interesting being at the Denver Museum because we um, have traditionally been on the really progressive end of things. And so we, we, re, we um, recently repatriated a bunch of um, Vigongo, which are funerary markers, ancestors really from Kenya. There was nothing that said that we had to send these back, but it was it's just not right to have them in a collection. They were given to the museum as a tax write-off from a famous um, actor, mm -hmm. actually. And um, we recognized that this is not something appropriate. And so took those steps to, to send them back to Kenya. And thankfully they, they arrived this past or two summers ago, which is really quite incredible. Um, and so, you know, seeing other museums take these steps has really just been quite encouraging. And um, also, you know, recognizing and, and talking about how, because something like that doesn't belong in a museum, doesn't mean we're going to empty all museums. Museums still have a place. And I think um, that, you know, it's just having that having that larger conversation, opening up the routes of communication with the um, ancestral communities, with various stakeholders. And it's hard work, but it's so important to get to a, like a consensus in some way that people can feel good about. Definitely. And, you know, respecting the interests 
of those groups, but then also still being able to display things that aren't as culturally sensitive, you know, or like you were saying, grave markers, you know, that has a real like strong connection and is, you know, something that we both clearly feel shouldn't be like taken. But there are other things that, you know, are can be displayed to show the culture that they are okay with, that they're happy, you know, to have their culture represented. Um, you know, I think that while you were talking, it made me think, I think one of the things is that we need to minimize private collections. You know, there's all of these artifacts that have been bought, like you were saying, by famous actors or people with money. And I think that that the idea of buying an ancient artifact is something that I hope can really change. And I think that's also part of the inspiration in some ways behind these videos is because I'm like, we still, even as an institution in the public trust, we only have, as any museum, less than 1% of our materials out on the floor. And mm -hmm. we're still working through the digitization process of these as well to get them just, just photographs online. We should actually be getting there pretty soon um, with all of our collection. But um, yeah, just to like have that awareness that these are available for ancestral communities to come and visit and to, to what, you know, and we'll, we, we at least are very open to having that conversation of like, well, if this is something you want back, yeah, <laughs> we, we will do that. Definitely. So it is, um, but you know, it is a conversation. It, like I said, we're not like opening the doors and just giving everything away. So I, I just, I don't know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to be thought about right now in the world of museums. And I think that that makes it a very exciting place. Definitely. So my last question for you is a bit more fun because I think that part of what I love to do on the podcast is I love to show the person behind the science. And yes, science is a big part of our life. But I was curious, you know, what are some of your passions outside of anthropology? And then have you picked up any fun quarantine skills or maybe read some interesting content? Yeah, well, I would say probably the biggest quarantine skill that I picked up is I became a yoga instructor during quarantine. <laughs> um, it wasn't really planned like that. I was start I started yoga teacher training the weekend before shutdown. And we decided to go along with it. And it was like one weekend a month for a couple couple months until November. And um, we did some of it on Zoom. There were a few times in there where we were able to get in small groups in, in the studio. But yeah, that was quite an incredible experience to go through during the whole time when you just feel so disconnected and discombobulated. It was just an incredible um, I, I don't know, like, you know, learning meditation and grounding and <laughs> inquiry. And you're just like, okay, these are really good skills right now. So yeah, I'm sure it helped um, your family as well. You were like, okay, yeah. I am, I am the yogi master that is going to keep us all calm and put together during this craziness. Exactly. I don't know if that really came <laughs> off, but you know, <laughs> um, so that was, that's something. And then I, I continue to teach. So that's kind of been a fun thing for yeah. that. Um, I've picked up in quarantine, I would say. <laughs> I love to hear that. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was, you know, a pleasure to have you on and I'm definitely going to have, you know, I'll have the Denver uh, Museum of Nature and Science linked below. I'll have some of your work and, you know, your website as well. So people can, you know, further engage with your research, 
you know, hopefully visit the Denver Museum of Nature and Science one day. It's definitely definitely on my list. I mean, I can't wait to tell my family because, like I said, I have a lot of family in um, Colorado and Wyoming, and I would be surprised because I feel like they would have probably mentioned it. We're a big museum family, but I'll, I'm definitely going to tell them to head over there. It, are you open right now for visitors? We are okay. open right now. Where we are pretty much. I think they're at like 20% capacity, but you, you yeah. know, that's very, very rare that they ever hit that because it's a massive building. So mm -hmm. yes, come tell everybody Lovely. to come. <laughs> yes, I will. And I'm sure they will. And I'm sure they're listening right now in the future. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to go. 